Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include one move at a time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Grandmaster Joel Benjamin is our guest today. He was last on the show in September talking about the World Senior and the U.S. Senior events. I gave an extensive introduction recapping his career on that show, so let me just briefly say here that he earned his Grandmaster title in 1986, then became a three-time U.S. champion, winning in 1987, 97, and 2000. He is the youngest inductee into the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame, entering in 2008 at the age of 43. He is here to talk to us today about his cover story in the November Chess Life, remembering Grandmaster Pal Benko, who died in August at the age of 91. Welcome back to the Cover Stories with Chess Life podcast, Grandmaster Joel Benjamin. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. And it's too bad it has to be uh, for a a remembrance article because, you know, Grandmaster Benko was one of the really good guys in chess. He definitely was. I mean, the silver lining is that that when great players die, that then we, we, we start to remember them better, you know, and he, uh, I think he'd been living in, in Hungary over the last several years and, uh, you know, just kind of having a quiet life away from, from public eye. Um, and, uh, so at least we, we have the opportunity to appreciate what a great, excuse me, what a great career and fascinating life he had. Did you have any kind of personal relationship with him? I, I knew him a little bit, um, you know. As I as I as I said in the article, I, I don't know if I could, you know, say that he was a personal friend of mine. But you know, we certainly were friendly, and um, you know, if we would, you know, see each other at, uh, you know, we didn't see we didn't see each other so much at, at tournaments, uh, you know, when I was a professional because we didn't we didn't really intersect that much in those years. But, you know, sometimes he would, uh, you know, he might come to the Manhattan Chess Club and he, he would always, you know, he'd always have something to show. He'd have some interesting games or, or problems or end games. And uh, he, he enjoyed holding court and, uh, and, and showing the stuff off. And, uh, you know, it was always very enthralling for me, you know, there always much, much to learn from him. Now, you, you, you just said that you didn't compete uh, at, at many tournaments at the same time, but I'm, I'm curious because in this day where video is so common, we, we, we know what the board behavior is like for so many of our top players. Uh, did you see him enough that you'd be able to describe what his behavior was like at the board? Was it the kind to be, you know, leg shaking or smoking a cigarette? What? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, I, I would imagine that there, there, there was a bit of shaking because he was an habitual time pressure addict. You know, he was, he was pretty, pretty up there with, with, um, 
with the the uh, the the most time scrambly players of all time, and that was that was one of the things that definitely held back his career. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, he's he's famous for blundering rooks, but you know, that was because he never had any time on his clock. So um, you know, probably. Probably where I saw him the most would have been less formal events. I probably played in blitz tournaments with him, and I I sort of have a have a picture that uh, that like I said, he probably did get kind of fidgety, you know, when the clocks got low. You cite uh, the great book Pal Benko, My Life, Games, and Compositions by Benko and International Master Jeremy Silman as uh, your main source for this, and in in that bio. Uh, Silman in introduction calls Benko an artist first over a sportsman or scientist. Do you agree with this assessment, especially considering Silman's later comment that Powell was always at the forefront of opening theory? Yes, I think this is a pretty reasonable uh, statement. Uh, I mean, first of all, consider the fact that that he was he was a composer. You know, he made uh, great endgame studies, and he made problems of every variety, not just. Not just your garden variety main three, but all kinds of all kinds of alternate type of, of compositions, as as anyone who reads the book uh, can 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 see in uh, in one of uh, in some of those uh, late chapters. Um, also, I think uh, being an end game, uh, sorry, being an opening theoretician is to some de- some degree um, the the art of the game because you're you're looking for for interesting ideas, you know, rather than just just playing playing in simple ways and the Benko Gambit was really one of the most artistic uh, ways that you can play. Uh, another thing about it is that, that, you know, one thing that you can't say about, about Benko's chess, he wasn't a guy that fought every game to the death. You know, he didn't have that killer instinct like, like uh, Fisher did. And that along with the time pressure is the other thing that, that held him back in his career. He made a lot of draws you know, and, and uh, um, so he was willing to do that. It wasn't always about, you know, am I going to, you know, fight to the death to get this point? But I think that, uh, you know, the, the artistry of the game uh, was very important to him. So that actually uh, leads into one of the other questions I had that, uh, that fascinates me. I, I wonder about players like Benko and Albert who had to fight so hard for their personal freedom, leaving communist countries, uh, I, I wondered if that made them stronger fighters on the chessboard, or is it possible that they just had a better perspective on what was truly important in, in life, or do you think it just comes down to uh, personality type? Yeah, I don't think that you could really lump everyone together, you know, just because they had that kind of similar life experience. For for Banco, uh, what 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 can I say about him? Uh, you know, like reading reading the Silman book. Uh, I I really got a sense of you know how much he struggled in his life. I mean, I had no idea he was basically in a in a concentration camp for a year, you know, and had to overcome that. So what I took from it is really that he was a guy that was you know whatever you threw at him, he was he was able to handle it and find the bright side, you know. And he came he came to to America and he still had to struggle. I didn't have any money. But he was just happy. He was a free man, and he, you know, he did whatever he had to do, and he didn't complain about it. Um, you know, one thing that really struck me was when he when he discussed, uh, you know, back in, in, in old chess life, his his reasons for giving Fisher his spot. One thing he said was, 
uh, he wanted to, to, to do it partly as a thank you to the U.S. Chess Federation that had helped him. And that's something I'd never heard any other grandmaster say. I mean, every grandmaster thinks like, well, you know, like other people could have done more for me, you know, but he was kind of happy about that. So that that's what I really got most about about how his experiences molded him. Uh, he, he, he realized, you know, how, how much life could be worse. And, uh, you know, he was always, he was always kind of okay with things. So let, let's move over to, uh, Benko as the opening theoretician. Um, our infographic in this issue is on the evolution of the the Benko gab, gambit. And in your article, you, you surprised me a bit by making an absolute statement of calling it the most brilliant invention in the history of opening theory. But please ex- expand on that. Why, why is it the most brilliant invention? Well, I address that a little bit in the annotations. Um, the thing is, is, first of all, it's a gambit, right? Now, a gambit is nothing new in chess. We, some gambits are very, very old. But your typical you know, gambit, like the king's gambit or, or Danish gambit, the idea is that you're giving a pawn or pawns for quick development, for, to, to gain a move or two in the opening, and to try to lead to a direct attack. That's, that's the general idea of gambits. But this gambit has nothing to do with attacking. It doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with the king. In a, in a Benko gambit, Black almost never gets an attack on the king. Uh, the whole idea is that it sets up a kind of structure where Black will have this enduring positional pressure on the queen side, led by the bishop un, uh, uh, on an unblocked long diagonal and the open uh, A and B files that that Black could pressure on. And it's just an absolute genius idea. I don't know why anyone would even think of doing that. You know, like we, we, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We know about the Benko gambit because of Benko, and uh, you know, and and so uh, so now we could understand it. But you know, like how anybody would even think that this was in the first place that this was a viable opening. And I imagine that when when he when he started to introduce it into tournament play. Uh, a lot of players must have been been shocked and, and skeptical that that it could be uh, a reasonable opening at all. Now, as a class player, uh, I, I have found it one of the easier openings for myself to learn because I, I learned that there was not a whole lot of memorization needed for this opening. Uh, that it's it's more so than many. It's just learning the principles will get you way down the road. What are your thoughts as a grandmaster uh, about a class level player? like myself using it as a as a main stay of his opening repertoire yeah that's 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 mainly true about the opening theory there are certain uh certainly a lot of uh a lot of nuances uh that are good to know and uh and the player you mentioned lev albert kind of took up the mantle of uh of banco in in later years and and developed the opening theory uh to 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 a great degree um, I would say that the, that in a lot of the more modern variations, like some of the some of the lines where White declines the pawn or it gives back the pawn, you know, maybe those are a little bit more theory intensive. But um, it's an opening that that really uh, relies more on on general understanding. But uh, you know, as 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 a club player, the, the important thing is that that if you go into that, that you understand what the opening is about, that, that you heed the, the explanations and, uh, and get a sense of, of what you're trying to, 
to achieve and that, you know, you're not necessarily thinking like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to win some material on move 20. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's a very patient process to, um, you know, to, to get your position going and, and ultimately, um, you know, reap the benefits. And going from the openings to the endings, uh, Benka was, of course, famous for his Endgame Lab column in Chess Life that ran for decades. I, I, I'm curious, did Grandmasters, uh, did your fellow pros, did is that a column that you guys read and studied as well? Well, I would say that I read it more as 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 a younger developing player than as as a, as a professional. You know, when you get to be a professional player, then you know, then you're into the informants and the the the, the new in chess and all the all this uh, the high level stuff. But um, but Banco was a guy that I re- would read anything that that he wrote. He had he had a great writing style. Um, I mean, I don't think I don't think that his his uh, his English was on a high level. I'm sure that is a lot of work for the editors, but he did have a way of communicating of of of, uh, of uh, contacting the listener. He was very accessible in that way, and uh, almost almost like he was sitting there with you, showing you the position. So I. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed ev- everything that he read, not just the end games, but also, you know, those tournament reports uh, in the arena, I think was the, the column, uh, you know, in the 70s, when you had no access to any information about what was going on in the world, you know, that that was like manna from heaven to, to be able to... Um, you know, to learn about what was going on in the world. I'm actually going to use that last statement as a transition to a little trivia question I came up with for you. I, I was curious about the very first time Benko might have been mentioned in Chess Life, and I did some research and found the very first mention of Benko in Chess Life. What year would you guess that was? Uh... Well, well let's see. Well, we're, we're talking... We're really talking about Chess chess is a chess life and review that we're talking about because it was you know two d- different magazines and so on so that's why i have to ask the question zero in. we are we are specifically talking about chess life well chess because chess life the modern chess life itself began 1980 so it was chess life and review before that well well uh so we're, we're gonna so we're, we're going for the the history of chess life goes back to 1946 and it was called chess life when it was a bi-weekly uh, newspaper uh, at that point, because there was just like that, and there was just review that later merged. So that's that's right. <laughs> giving right. Time yeah. this. Okay. So all right. So the chess, the chess life side of it. Uh, well, then I have no, I have no idea. Uh, I probably let's see. Probably, um, probably around the time that he that he first got to America. So probably like in the in the late 50s, like 1958, something like that. And you're, with, you're within 10 years, so we're, we're, we'll call that a win for you. <laughs> <laughs> so the first mention of his name uh, is in uh, the February 20th, 1949 issue of Chess Life. Uh, it's in the column by George Koltanowski called Chess Life Abroad. And it's a very short mention where it says, Hungary. The championship of Hungary was won by Benko, who was 20 years old, with 11 points on 16. Wow! So that was a very pr- progressive of uh, getting uh, to uh, to uh, events all over the world. Okay, so very good. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I was very surprised as well by by that early date. 
Yeah. One thing about Endgame Lab is, you know, he had his compositions um, uh, as part of that column, and you you write a, a great deal about his compositions. I, I I'm curious now about the average. American grandmasters' relationship to compositions. It doesn't seem like something they're generally interested in. Although on last month's show, we talked about international master Christopher Hughes' uh, strong interest in compositions, which and it just seems unusual to me these days. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, that that well that amazed me. That amazed me because. Um, yeah, I mean, the young people today, they see chess in a whole different way than, than we did. Uh, you know, they don't even, you know, they don't even read books very much, you know, which is when I was Christopher Yu's age, well, maybe even, maybe even a little younger, I, I mean, I read books all the time. You know, that's, I look around this room and I, I see most of, most of the books that I have, you know, date from, from my childhood. Uh, so Christopher Yu, I mean, that, that is really, is truly amazing. And I think it's actually a really good sign for him because that that demonstrates to me a really great love of chess, an, intr- an intrinsic love of the game. So I think he's <laughs> he's going to be a lifer, as as uh, in my opinion. Uh, but but to, to speak to uh, other grandmasters, I I would say that in general, you know, grandmasters don't really seek out problems, um, you know, but. Uh, I don't. I don't think that we, you know, buy you know these books very much and go through them and so on. However, if we see one in a magazine, or you know, <laughs> Pal Benko would come to the club, or anybody else would say, "Look, I got this problem." You know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, grandmasters, you know, would sit around and somebody would 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 show some problem and uh, and uh, you know that was always entertaining. Everybody would always get into it. So it, it wasn't something that we uh, we would seek out and spend a lot of time on, but uh, but enjoyed uh, you know being shown stuff and working on it. And you you also wrote about something that was really interesting to me about uh, chess, uh, uh, the, the, his interest in pre-chess, um, and because that that jumped out at me because one of the very first issues I received uh, of Chess Life as a brand new U.S. chess member in the late 70s was uh, an issue that had a picture of Benko and Bisgeier playing a game of pre-chess, and, and you indicate how you played with him, uh, or played with, with, with Benko. I, I, one thing I'm curious about is pre-chess seems to me much more logical than Fisher, Random, or Chess 960. Do you, do you have any sense of why pre-chess, where you're starting by placing the pieces on the board one by one uh didn't make it but chess 960 did oh well i think part of it was pre-chess was before its time um you know the idea that that theory is taking over we have to change okay i think capablanca said that in the 1920s but you know before the computers it wasn't really true you know and, th- and now it's a thing that people think about all the time like i was i was kind of amazed by the attitude of a lot of the juniors at the at the U.S. Junior, like a lot of them don't like to play long time control games because they think like, oh, you know, then because you know everybody plays opening theory and then you can't do anything. So, so the it's, Fisher Random is certainly coming along at a better time, but uh, I would say one of the uh, advantages, and I say that kind of in air quotes, of Fisher Random is. That it is random. That it takes uh, it kind of uh, takes the the ability 
of the of the players to know what the position is going to be beforehand, and therefore, um, uh, you know, makes it a little bit a little bit more difficult to prepare the openings. The thing about pre-chess is that really the pieces tend to get set up in the same places. You know, you almost put your almost always put your bishops on a one and h one, and then uh, I mean, okay, after that it could be it could be different, I guess. It doesn't it doesn't really matter that much, but you know, probably you're going to put your rooks in the middle, and your um, you know your knights or queens. Uh, you know, you, you put uh, maybe your knights on c1 and f1 and uh you always you know you you tend to leave the the the, uh the square on the b file and the square on the g file for last and you put your king you're going to put your king there um pretty much every every time you're going to get your king out of the center one thing about pre-chess is that is sorry one thing about fisher random is that your king is often on in, in strange places and and you have this bizarre castling which uh makes the game even more uh, incomprehensible, but I guess it's kind of fun. You have surprising castling, so I guess it's that complexity in the face of you know all this opening theory that that people people kind of like. Um, also, you know, it just came you know came around at a time when it was easier to publicize it, and of course, having Fisher's name attached to it, you know, is uh, is a big deal as well. But um, but I was just, you know, reading some things that Benko wrote in the book, and it seems to me that he that that Fisher's that Fisher random chess really kind of sprung from what Benko was trying to do because they were friends and they had many conversations, and Benko really thinks that Fisher, you know, got it from him. And another thing you mentioned in the article that may have been a a, a strike against pre-chess is that almost always you said uh, the kings would be set up on opposite wings. Yeah. So eventually, eventually, you know, you kind of no the the, the kings the kings wouldn't be on opposite necessarily be on opposite wings because you would you would have the choice of whether whether uh, where you're gonna which side you're gonna put it on. So basically, black had the choice. <laughs> black had the choice of the king the kings on opposite wings or the same wings, which which is why I fared much better against Benko with black. <laughs> because with black, I put my king down on the opposite side and went for an attack. And with white, the kings went on the same side, and it was a positional game, and it was much rougher for me. This pre-chess discussion just really shows how varied his chess life really was. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, we, we've talked everything from end games and compositions and opening theory um, to you know, to and and world championship play, and uh, and then even this variant. So uh, he absolutely lived a life devoted to all aspects of chess. Yeah, he he had his he had his uh, uh, he his hands in all aspects of the game. Uh, part part of what made uh, you know writing writing that article so daunting is to say you know like uh, is is to, to really cover everything that was uh, a major part of his of his uh, chess career um, because he. Uh, I mean, he was like the ultimate Hall of Famer. I mean, he could be he could be in the Hall of Fame just just for his uh, his compositions alone. And on top of that, he was a candidate level player and a, a you know an eight time winner of the 
U.S. Open and uh, and the inventor of the bingo gambit, you know. So, you know, he just uh, he enriched the chess community in so many ways. Well, let's move on to our best question contest. Uh, it's sponsored by U.S. Chess Federation Sales, the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and they will gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. So, Joe, we've got I've got two questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one's a, the first one's an appetizer, and it comes from Carl Palmatier. He asks, "Did Grandmaster Benko ever discuss the 1956 revolution and any part he had in it?" Wow, um, you know what 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 I know about this kind of thing is is from the uh, from the Silman book. This is not is something that he. Uh, you know, talked about in person about the, about those old times before he came to America. But I'm trying to think. I, I don't recall really reading anything about that. It seemed like after his first failed attempt to to escape from Hungary, he 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 seemed to describe that period as kind of keeping his nose clean and biding his time, and uh, you know, just waiting for another chance to escape. But I don't remember reading anything about that. Um, you know, I, I don't claim to be the Benko expert. I, I, I really know a lot about Benko now because I read the book and I did research for, for, this, for this article. But um, as far as I know, uh, I, I, nothing there. Okay. And for the question that I've selected as the best question, it comes from Chad Oliver. And Mr. Oliver, thank you for your question. And your $50 gift certificate is waiting for you in your email inbox. He writes, Grandmaster Benjamin, what did Grandmaster Benko consider to be the most significant change in the chess world, for better or worse, over his lifetime? Um, well, again, this is the danger of putting words in his mouth. But um, I think that he probably it probably would have had something to do with with computers. Um, you know, although that a lot of that stuff came really you know after his, his playing career, although. Um, you know, he was, he was composing for a long time. It, uh, you know, computers certainly have, uh, have, have an effect on, uh, on composing problems because, uh, uh, well, in, in the article, I, I tell the story about this position that he showed to Fisher and Fisher couldn't solve it. And, uh, and, you know, he had to give Fisher the answer, but of course nowadays <laughs> Bobby could just turn, turn on his engine and get the answer, and he could even pretend that he, the next day, that he that he was able to answer it. So, so I guess the, the, the computers can show you the answer. They can, you know, possibly show if there's a if there's a cook. Uh, so just like just like they ruin a lot of old games, maybe they ruin some of those problems. Because not so many people are familiar with compositions these days. Uh, go ahead and describe or, or define what a cook is in relation to compositions, please. Yeah, a cook is basically an, an alternate uh, solution. You know, it's like you, you may set up a problem and say, okay, you know, a main two. And there's, there's a move that forced main two. But what if there's another move that actually does the same thing? That would be considered a cook. And, and the best problem, you know, has one unique solution. And I know that 
it, it used to drive uh, Benko to, distra- to distraction when I would get, uh, re- when he was still the Endgame Lab columnist, I would often get reader letters to him where they were, they've uh, come up with their own composition and they wanted his feedback on it. And 90% of the time he would come back with, you've got to run it through a computer first. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. This, this doesn't work because of this and this and this. Right, right, yeah. But, but that's the thing is that now you can get that, you can get that feedback. I mean, I probably... Probably everybody just wanted to, to connect with Benko anyway, you know, brush with greatness. But yeah, you can you can check on your own whether whether something works. Uh, let me just uh, amplify a little bit that that question. Um, he probably, I mean, uh, you know, he, his his playing career really kind of kind of ended it before. You know, you know, he he, he stopped really when we got to the seventies. He was no longer like a serious international player, you know. Like at the time that he stepped aside for Fisher, he didn't see himself as a as a contender for the world championship anymore. And he, you know, he was playing in open tournaments, but by the mid seventies, he was really kind of tapering off on the playing. So he he really didn't, uh, you know, as a player, he didn't really make it to the age of the computers. But I'm sh- I'm sure that uh, you know, given given that it was still the nineteen seventies when he was working on pre chess, he certainly would have thought that. Uh, you know that the the rise of computers and databases and uh, and eventually engines and how they affected opening theory, he he probably would have would have felt uh, that it, that it was uh, a completely different kind of challenge to be an opening theoretician in the uh, in the nineties or the two thousands than than it was uh, you know back in his prime. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, Joel, Joel, it was great having you on. Uh, you know, it, it 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 feels like we haven't left since you were just on two months ago. But thank you for joining us again. Yeah. Well, what are we going to talk about next time? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you tell me what your next cover story is, and I'll tell you what we're talking about next time. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it'll be a more uh, pleasant topic than than uh, discussing someone's uh, recent demise. Well, so you know, the, the death of someone is is a sad thing. But you know, I, I look at Benko, and Benko, you know, he had a really amazing life and a very challenging life. Uh, early on and his his reward was that he he lived to 91 you know so I, I i think he he got to do pretty much everything that he wanted to do in life so you know i think you know when you when you when you pass away under those circumstances then it's uh, then it's a better thing i agree so again thank you very much and um, look forward to having you on the show again in the future my pleasure Thank you for listening to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return on the first Tuesday of next month when we will again be making a deeper dive into the pages of Chess Life. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life for Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.